All right, cool. Well, we're going to go ahead and jump in. We are in the book of Luke. We've been here for since whenever we, we started. Uh, this is probably eight or nine weeks in the book of Luke, and we are today at chapter three. So we are moving along, and uh, I, I want to start off just by reading the text. We're going to just do verses one through nine of chapter three, and wifey, would you mind reading <laughs> verses one through nine? See, I like to call on people, but I figure it's safe to call on my, my own. Uh... <laughs> I don't that way. I don't have to do it. Let me. I'm going to see how she does it, and then, and then we'll, and then we'll be all right. That's, that's not funny. Okay. Um, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thank you. You did a great job pronouncing those, those words. By the way, if you're ever reading scripture out... Say it like you mean. Yes. Just, just go over those words and say it like you know what you're talking about. Just pretend nobody and nobody really knows. <laughs> um, let's pray and then we'll, we'll just jump in. Father God, thank you for this time together. <sighs> This past week um, of Thanksgiving, I pray that you would allow that to continue. Whether or not we, we, we really sat and relaxed and, uh, and thought about what kind of blessings that you have bestowed upon us, uh, let us now today, if, if not this past week, let us be able to simply sit and relax in your grace, even as through your word today, uh, you may offend us. Lord, you will be offending us with truth so that we may see your grace and your love. And I pray that as we leave here today, we will simply be encapsulated by, by that feeling um, th- that you love us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would do his work uh, through the feeble words that I'm going to, to say and try to communicate. Um, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for this time. And it's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. All right, so uh, we're going to look at uh, John the Baptist today. He's going to come on the scene, and uh, he's going to say some extremely offensive things, and that's why, if you were, if you were listening, he, he just called us uh, children of the devil. And so I want you to go ahead and kind of prepare you that uh, that's what you're going to be called t- tonight, and that's what I've been called all week, so I want to make sure I communicate that to you now so I can pass along the, 
the feelings of um, name-calling, I guess. Uh, but it is with the intention that, that in, in this offensive talk, in this offensive announcement that John is going to be making, the purpose of it is actually so that you may see Jesus and his grace extremely clear. That is, that is our goal. And so I want to just walk through this text and, um, and just see what we make of it. Uh, keep in mind, and I, I kind of say this every week, uh, with this size of crowd, it makes it, um, it makes it fun to have some interaction. So feel free while I'm talking. If you have a question or I say something that doesn't make any sense, just stop me. And let's chat about it for a minute. That's fine. Uh, or, or afterwards if, if you have questions and there'll be a time for that. But, but we get to have some dialogue and a little bit of community group style in this. It doesn't have to simply be me talking one-way conversation. We can have some interaction if you guys want to. If not, I'm fine to talk. And I have a clock this time. And I'll try not to talk too long. <laughs> but there's so much here. Uh, John the Baptist is is a crazy cool dude. He is an amazing man. In fact, Matthew refers to John the Baptist as the greatest prophet to have ever lived. Jesus refers to John the Baptist as the greatest man to have ever been born of a woman. Uh, This dude is kind of a big deal. And so when we look at him, uh, just imagine him wearing that t-shirt that says, "I'm, I'm kind of a big deal around here. Uh, we bought that T-shirt for my dad a few years ago because he's kind of a big deal, or at least around our house. <laughs> I should have the shirt probably because I think I'm a big deal too. Uh, <laughs> all right, if you remember, as we've been starting off, Luke has been jumping back and forth from John the Baptist to Jesus. All right, he, he jumped back and forth from this miraculous conception of each uh, and a miraculous birth, and that's where we left off last week with the... Uh, well, with the birth of Jesus, and then we saw one instance, one, one snapshot of Jesus' life as he was in that transition to manhood, realizing who his uh, true father was, making, making a separation from his earthly parents, and Luke was showing us he knew who he was. He knew the direction that he was going, uh, and, and recognizing his father was God Almighty. Um, but if you... If you remember the last time that we saw John the Baptist, it was at his birth. So today's text is going to be fast-forwarding 30 years from the last time we saw John the Baptist. And if you remember when he was born, uh, Zechariah, his dad, made the proclamation, his name is John. Remember that he had been shut up by the angel Gabriel uh, because of his doubt. God wanted to teach him to have faith, and so he uh, was made silent for nine months of pregnancy of, of his wife. If you remember, they were old, uh, they were barren, they were almost dead, they were so old. And barren, yet God blessed them with a son. And then that was contrasted with, with Mary, young, child, virgin, unmarried birth. And we talked a little bit about that. But, but so that's where we are, uh, 30 years in advance. And the last sentence that we read about John the Baptist was from back in Luke chapter 1, verse 80. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So that's where John has been, in the wilderness. Um, I wanted to show you on on a map just kind of where where this is, where this was, and uh, and tell you just a little bit about him. So this is a map of, of Palestine. 
Judea is, is here, and then we have Bethlehem, Jerusalem. The wilderness that is, is being talked about here is actually east of the Dead Sea and, and north. So in this region here, uh, to the east of the Jordan River. This is the Dead Sea. This is the Sea of Galilee. Uh, this is the Jabbok River that runs right in here. So most people would, would limit it. That's kind of the northern end of this wilderness. There was hill country here right on the, right on the east side of the Jordan River. And then it, and then it drops off. It's kind of a plateau. And then it drops off to about 1,500 feet below sea level and just massive wasteland desert. So I got you a picture of the Jabbok River on the next slide. This, this is basically, this is the wilderness, Okay, so this is what you should have pictured in mind. Close to the, uh, closer to the rivers, there would be vegetation. Some places are a little more uh, densely vegetated than this. And so, uh, you know, we, when we think of wilderness, at least for me, I think of woods, like forest and that kind of thing. And there were some, there is some of that, but most of it would look like this, a, a wasteland. All right, that's, that's what it's like. So extremely harsh conditions. All right, we get a little more information about the character of John because this is the kind of environment that he's been living in. Uh, before I go, go to this, if you remember, Gabriel said that John was going to um, be a bit peculiar. In fact, what he described, or Luke did back when we were uh, in chapter 1, Luke described John as, uh, as being a, a man that would be living under a Nazarite vow, and if you remember when we talked about that, it was a a Nazarite vow was was a, a temporary setting apart of oneself, a dedicating of oneself to the Lord for a period of time. And during that time, uh, the the person that was taking the Nazarite vow would uh, abstain from from many of the normal everyday blessings that God. <laughs> gifts us with. So uh, they did strange things like they, they wouldn't cut their hair. They would refrain from that. They would refrain from alcohol or having anything actually from the vine. They would, um, there were lots of other, lots of other little, little things and we don't even have to go into all of those. But they set the, the idea is they set themselves apart for a period of time. John, however, would be one and was one that set himself apart taking a Nazarite vow for life. And so he had been living set apart, literally set apart, living in the wilderness, uh, not involved with the political uh, society that was going on, not even really in, involved with the religious society of the time that was going on. So he was, he was set apart. He was living off the land. Matthew gives us a little bit more detail to this guy's life and says that... Um, he wore a garment of camel's hair. That means basically he, he was truly living off the land. He skinned a, a camel, and that's what he wore as his clothing. Uh, he wore a leather belt. His food was locusts and wild honey. And so he basically found or made his own food. Okay, this, this guy was off the grid. That's, that was his life. Totally off the grid. All right? Now what we're going to see today is this guy completely untouched by normal everyday society step into a particular political and religious climate and when he does there's going to be a small nuclear explosion okay it's like somebody drops a very large rock into that pond out there it's it causes ripples and waves all right what luke is going to do as he starts off his this, this section of text, this chapter 3, he's going to give us a bit of insight into that political and religious climate. If you remember, 
Luke is writing to a guy named Theophilus, right? Um, Theophilus is, is a Roman government official. He would, he would know, with the mention of these names that we're about to read, he, he would know who these guys are, uh, what this kind of meant, and apparently Theophilus had been doing some research of his own, uh, was at least somewhat familiar with the Old Testament. He was, he was a skeptic, but he was trying to figure some things out. And Luke was writing to him to prove that all these things that he had been hearing, this whole new Christianity thing, that it was actually true. All right. So if you'll look back at the beginning there of, of chapter 3, we come across eight names to start with. And typically when I come to names, and in two weeks we're going to come to the genealogy, uh, which is just a list of names, I tend to just skim over them. I don't even stop to try to pronounce them like, like Megan did. I just say, yeah, that's a name. That's, that's good. Uh, but Luke doesn't waste ink. Okay? It, even though he was, he was a doctor, that doesn't mean he was rich and could have paper left and right. Um, you know, we gave free paper to these kids. That kind of thing it didn't happen. Okay? <laughs> Luke did not waste his time and he did not waste his ink to just frivolously include names. These are here for a reason. He said, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. And I thought that was a town in Texas, but it's... It's there, actually. During the, they moved it. <laughs> During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. So um, uh, we can easily come up with, uh, with the timing and dating for this, but that, that's not really the reason that Luke included it. It was to set up the political and religious climate. Um, we, we don't have to go into detail right now on all of these guys, but... Tiberius Caesar was emperor over the Roman Empire. All right? uh, the idea to, the, to a Jew, to the Jewish mind, the idea that someone, a Gentile, was ruling over them was, um, was terrible. All right? they, they were supposed to be God's chosen people. God was their ruler. They had a theocracy going. Under God was the priests. Theocracy is a rulership by God. Okay, that's the form of government that they had. And so the priests who, would, who were basically in contact with God would then distribute the laws and, and that kind of thing. Uh, but in this circumstance, Rome was overseeing them. Uh, the idea of having someone that was not Jewish, that was a pagan idolater ruling over them, that, that, that was, this was horrible. And in fact, um, this guy, Tiberius, w- was more than just a, a pagan Gentile. He was a crazy guy. And w- when I say that, I mean literally. Uh, he, he had dementia in his later life. Um, most Caesars had a little bit of craziness to them, but that tends to happen when people worship you as a god. Like you, you get full of yourself, and uh, that certainly happened. But even more than that, uh, the last part of his of his reign of his um, Caesarhood, if you will, was actually called his 
his reign of terror. Uh, when something didn't go his way, he would go crazy. And not for any logical reason, if, if just something didn't go his way on that day, well, then he would unleash his wrath upon whoever it was in that given moment. So it, he was a terrifying sort of, sort of leader. That's the, guy, that's, that's the guy who was leading here. Uh, then we have these, these other folks. If you notice, one was a brother of another. Uh, Tetrarch is mentioned several different times here. Uh, Tetrarch was, was basically a sub-leader. When someone would, would divide their kingdom up, they would put uh, a ruler over that. And a Tetrarch is one of four leaders of a particular region. And so uh, rulership was divided. They each had some different sorts of laws and governing um, uh, governing things in place, and so there was this mix-matched kind of thing, and people were vying for power, and uh, one of these names you saw is Pontius Pilate. We all know, or at least are familiar with him from the Christmas story. This is the guy who uh, is basically going to be the, the hitman and sentence Jesus to death. Um, it's interesting that Pontius Pilate, for, for a long time, was actually used by, by skeptics of Christianity or by naysayers of Christianity for centuries because uh, we could look, and, and the Rome, Romans kept good records of who was governor, and, um, and, and there was no listing of Pontius Pilate. Like, there, we couldn't find, there just wasn't any. And so um, skeptics would say, see, it's false, this is a made-up story. This guy didn't even exist. He's nowhere recorded in history. And the argument used to be that, well, well look, the, it actually says the governor here is not actually a noun. It's a participle. He was governing is what it says. He was just in some rulership capacity. He wasn't necessarily had that title and, and this kind of thing. The interesting thing is that in 1961, in, a, in an old building that was um, uh, basically a, a building that was, it was called the Tiberium, uh, close to Galilee, it was a building that was made in honor of Tiberius, the Caesar, they found a placard on the wall, a placard of dedication to, to this Caesar. And on that placard was Pontius Pilate, his name. He was one of the contributors to build this, this building for, for Tiberius. And it actually had his title on there. He was a uh, prefectus or a, a prefect is what we have come to call. The, he was a ruling, governing type of person. And so, um, uh, so the skeptics had, of course, nothing else to say. I, I mention that because this happens all the time with Scripture, and it's so cool. And uh, people, will, you know, will say, "Oh no, this couldn't be true," and then we dig it up, and it's there. And we're finding new discoveries like this all the time, and it makes me happy when that happens. It, it's one of those things that just reminds you that you no, know, this stuff that we're reading, and the whole reason I put the map up there and show you the the areas. That, this is not some made-up story. This is not some myth. This is not some religion created to help us feel better. This stuff really happened. This stuff really happened. Um, this is quite unique to Christianity. All right? Um, so, so that was kind of the political climate that, that was there. Uh, this was also during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So there was, there was corruption that was, that was just there politically. There was also corruption uh, within the whole Jewish system. These were the high priests. Uh, it, 
again, when you just read past these names, it, you don't really catch it. But but think about it for for just a minute. This should this should put you on guard. The high priests, plural, were Annas and Caiaphas. How many high priests are there supposed to be? One. Okay, so so this this should throw up a red flag. What do you mean there's two high priests? Well, during Roman rule, uh, the whole system of priesthood and, and uh, being a Levite and being a priest, that was, that was just X'd out, all right? Uh, that was ignored. Uh, in order to become a priest, or, and particularly a high priest, that was now an appointment by Rome. And so people would, would try to position themselves to, uh, to be in favor with Rome so that they would be appointed to this position of power. Annas was actually the father-in-law to Caiaphas. And uh, it, it turns out that much like we call presidents today, like former presidents, we still call them president so-and-so, President Carter, President Reagan, President Clinton, and so on. They tended to remain uh, uh, with that title. Caiaphas was the actual legitimate high priest, uh, but the power in this circumstance, kind of remained with Annas. Um, in the story of Jesus when he was taken to trial, they take him to Annas first, and then he ends up, um, and then he ends up with, with Caiaphas. So it was like this ruling family kind of thing. If you think, I, when I was reading it and reading the commentaries, it made me think of like a, a mob family or, or something. Like, here's the person in power, but the dad-in-law... He, he still makes things happen. Like, that's the, that's the guy who's really in charge. And so Luke just refers to them both as high priests. Like, that's, that's just what it was. Um, these guys had turned the high priesthood into a, a, just an extremely profitable, profitable business. You remember, um, if you remember much of the life of Jesus, Jesus ends up going into the temple, and what does he do? He doesn't like what he sees, and so he drives folks out with a whip because of the business practices that were going on in the temple, the, the business practices that were taking advantage of those who were trying to come and worship his father. Yeah, that was all put in place. That was all being overseen by these guys. They, they, were, they were making a killing. And this is the climate that John is about to step into. All right, that, that is Luke's point. Caiaphas, as well, was a, was a Sadducee, and, um, and Sadducees, they didn't really believe in too much of the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in, in spiritual sorts of things. Uh, but they were all about the here and now and, and gaining what you can in life. So talk about religious Practices, that's, that's what these guys were promoting, empty religious practices to get God's blessings right now. All right. Now, so you can imagine, no wonder that John the Baptist is going to cause some problems when he who has been outside of all this corruption and he's only been with the Word of God, and the text says filled with the Holy Spirit, he's going to step in and proclaim some truth that's going to upset all of these folks. All right. Uh, because it's in this context, we go to verse 2. The word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness. Uh, this basically marks the call into action. This is like, 
This is like Power Rangers when, when they say, all right, Power Rangers, let's, let's suit up. Like this, this, this is the call to action. They weren't even listening, obviously. <laughs> um, I put a slide up there. Any, any Jew reading this or Theophilus having read the Old Testament, uh, hearing these words, the word of the Lord came to John. This puts him in a category with all the great prophets that have come before him. All right, you can just see Genesis 15, 1, Abraham, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Nathan. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. God called John the Baptist at this moment in time, this particular moment in time, to step into, remember he had been set apart, to step into that political and that religious climate and declare his word, declare some truth, and the fact that the Messiah was coming right behind him. And that's exactly what he does. So you ought to expect some turmoil when this guy who has been set apart steps into this climate. In the same way that you ought to expect when, when the holy steps into the unholy, there is friction that happens. That's exactly what we're going to see. He steps onto the scene and he says, You should be baptized. You should repent. Now, that doesn't sound incredibly offensive to us. That, that sounds like normal Christian language. You need to repent and you need to be baptized. I, that's, that's a good thing. That's a normal kind of thing. You have to put yourself here in this context to understand the offense that this has to the Jewish mind, to the Jewish person. Okay, Because baptism in John's day was for Gentiles. Gentiles were those people. They were the dirty. They were the unclean. They were not the chosen people of God. They were the pagans. They were the idolaters. They, they, you could not uh, come in contact with a Gentile. You, you had to perform certain uh, ceremonial cleansings when you, when you come in contact with you, when you deal with outsiders, when you deal with people that, that aren't Jews. Like they... They were the enemy. They were evil. They were seen as enemies of God and therefore enemies of the Jewish people. They, they, were, they were the lowest of low to the Jew. In fact, for a Gentile to become a God worshiper, to be, to be brought into uh, the family of the Jews and to be a part of their religion, they had to go through very particular uh, religious ceremonies that involved baptism. See, they were dirty. They had to be cleaned. They had to be washed before they could participate. So John steps on the scene and he says, no, you you need to be baptized. You Israelites, Jews, you have to be baptized because you are no better than those people. John steps on the scene and levels the playing field. Uh, it just, it just in your mind, who, who is or who are those people for you? Is it the person that is a different color than you? Is it the person who is from a different place than you? Is it the person who is of another religion than you? Is it uh, the person who is a member of ISIS for you? 
those people, those people, you are just as dirty as they are. That's what John the Baptist is saying. This was incredibly offensive. Incredibly offensive. You're no different than the Gentile. Your birth has nothing to do with your relationship to God. And that's why down in verse 8, John the Baptist says, um, And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to make from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Like birth, who cares about your birth? God God could make people born of Abraham out of these rocks. That's what he's saying. But, he, but he's saying, you, just like them, need to repent for the forgiveness of your sins. All right, so what does it mean to repent? Okay, so they've been offended. What does it mean to repent? We have to ask that question. Me and Neely were talking about this morning. Um, the reason that we, that we go through and we teach, because if you just hear the words, you need to be repentant and, and baptized, what, what does that even mean? What does it even mean to repent? we probably have some different ideas because we've heard that religious slogan, repent and be baptized. All right, repent means to turn or to change one's mind. All right, so whatever it is that you are worshiping in this context, you are worshiping something other than God and you need to change your focus towards the one true God. He's telling these people who are the chosen people of God, you are not worshiping God. You need to repent. You need to turn from who you are worshiping, turn from your ways, and head in the other direction. Now, in a minute, he's going to get even more offensive. All right? Just so, so just wait a minute. But he seems to be kind of this hell, fire, and brimstone kind of preacher, and I don't know if you, any of you grew up with, with that kind of preaching, but um, I, guess, I guess it could be fun. Um, I picture an older man with a bald head and a big belly and a Bible waving and a towel in the other hand just sweating profusely and yelling a lot and yelling in this not very cool rhythm. I've, I've been tempted to try it, but I need to practice a little bit first. Um, <laughs> and, and saying Jesus a lot. Jesus like that, though, a lot. And I'll, I'll work on the... I'll work on the proper, um, what do you call it, rhythms, and, and maybe. <laughs> and then we may bring out some snakes. Right. Yeah, yeah. All right, so what Luke does here, he points back to a prophecy um, from, from Isaiah that occurred about 700 years prior to, to him talking right now. And, and this is really cool. He's, he's applying this prophecy to what's going on right now right here that he's communicating to Theophilus about, uh, right to John the Baptist. He says, As it is written in the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. All right, now, Obviously, we should, we should get right, right here at the beginning that um, Luke is showing us that, that John is the fulfillment of that prophecy from Isaiah that happened 700 years ago. 
in detail, coming out of the wilderness, proclaiming this. But there's actually more going on here because Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, and the typical Jew who was educated in the Old Testament would actually have got this. This is from Isaiah chapter 40. The first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah is all about God's judgment on Israel, about his, his wrath and his punishment and the rebellion of, of Israel. In chapter 40, however, things change. Chapter 40 actually starts off talking about the comfort of God because in the middle of this rebellion and in the middle of Israel deserving punishment and judgment, God comes on the scene delivering his kingdom, his kingdom of peace, of shalom, where, where everything is set back right. That's, that's the idea here, the coming of, of this king. And in fact, that's, that's what's being said here. Make, make a path, basically, for the king. See, in ancient times, uh, when, when a king, especially when they would come to power, it was typical that a king would go see his kingdom, his, his, country, his countryside. Now, you know, there weren't televisions. There weren't newspaper. There weren't even photographs. Like, he couldn't virtually, he couldn't get on Google Earth and go look at his kingdom. He had to actually go do it. Um, and from the other side, you, we get to see our president every day, whether we want to see him or not. We get to see him. <laughs> All right? These guys, the idea of being able to have sight to lay their eyes upon the king what would be just an amazing blessing is what they would have considered like this was a once in a lifetime or even once in several lifetimes in the talk of the town would be you know what my grandfather he was living in such and such a place and he got to see the king like it was a big deal to see the king. But this is what would happen when, when a king would take a tour of his countryside. Uh, he would send a crier or a messenger out ahead of him or someone from his, you know, his entourage would send someone out and they would basically say, make a path. Here's the announcement. The king is going to be coming here. So, so make a path, prepare, get ready because the king is coming. And normally this would be months in advance. All right. And maybe they had a basic itinerary, uh, or, but it would just be basic because it's not like Okay, let's put in the GPS. How long is it going to take to get from here to here? It didn't work like that. The king is going to be coming through your town. And so what do you think would happen in that period of time between the, the messenger and the king every, and the king coming? Everyone would scramble around to make things just in order. Um, do you guys remember when the Olympics came to Atlanta in 1996? Do you remember how we changed everything in preparation for the Olympics because, because the world was basically going to be virtually living here for a couple of weeks. It was going to be all over the news and broadcast around the world. And so uh, we gave our buildings facelifts. Like we spent a lot of money for the Olympics, right? Facelifts, we, we, uh, we totally changed landscaping all over the city of Atlanta. Uh, we redid roads. We even built new highways, in preparation for this particular event. This is what it would have been like for these guys. To, they would build highways. They, the ditches and the ravines, they would fill them in. They would flatten the hills and straighten the curves. And if you know the song that came from, you get a special treat. From the Dukes of Hazard theme song. Straighten it. Okay. All right. <laughs> 
See, some of you get it. Good. This is what they would do. They, they, they would literally take, if they had bulldozers, they, they would bulldoze a path to make this highway, to make their town a, a place that the king would remember. They're coming through there. The king is coming through their town. They're going to make everything perfect. They're going to clean it up. They're going to build the roads. They're going to patch the potholes. They're, they're, they're going to, to, instead of that road that goes around that mountain, let's, let's flatten this place out and, and make it easy for the king to come through here. That was the idea. That was what Isaiah was, was talking about, was, was going to happen. Uh, the king is coming, and you need to prepare. That, that, was, that was John's job, to be a bulldozer of sort, to go before Jesus and pave the way for him, and to call people to prepare the way for him. And he's saying, you need to repent. That's, that's how you... That's how you prepare for the coming king. That that sounds really cool, the king coming to visit um, and to prepare for the king. Like this this would be an exciting thing unless you're enemies with the king. Then it's not so good if the king is coming. Um... If you are enemies of the king, then you need to watch out because the king is coming. Look what uh, John the Baptist goes on to say. He doesn't really candy coat anything here. He says, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. All right, so he just referred to these people, and some people did come to be baptized, and some people came to view and see what all is going on here. Um, some people came to true baptism, and some people came just to, just to participate. Um, he calls them a brood of vipers. What is a brood, first of all? Do you know? A brood is a, is a group. It's, it's an offspring, like a litter. Like a, like a cat has a litter of, of kittens. A, a brood would be like a group of offspring. Okay, so you offspring of a viper. What, who do you think he's referring to when he talks about a snake here? You, who? Who? No, no. Although I'm glad you remember that story, the snake that was in the garden, right? Who was who was the snake in the garden? In the Garden of Eden, Satan. All right, you got to, uh, John the Baptist here is calling these people offspring of Satan. That's what he's saying. Are you children of Satan? Like that's, oh, why do I keep making these television references? You get another treat for knowing who that was. <laughs> Church lady. <laughs> Could it be Satan? All right, so children of Satan, that's what he's calling these people. Offspring of the devil. Wow, that just makes me want to listen. Like, like, what he's doing 
He's pointing out some truth. All right? In the garden, uh, we were, mankind was set up to rule this world under God, to rule this world. We gave that away to Satan. Now, Satan is the ruler of this world, and we now have a sinful nature that is inclined away from God. When our forefathers sinned and rebelled, they became spiritually dead, and they reproduce after their own kind, spiritually dead people, folks that are inclined away from God. We're children of Satan. It's so, um, <laughs> it's so easy to look on other people and, and see them as children of Satan. You see them as the enemy and you see them as those who are deceived and you see those people as sinners. Um, or we can even look back at, at these people who John the Baptist was talking to and we look, talked about the political and religious climate and we say, golly, can you believe those people? They were, they were just headed the wrong way, and it took John the Baptist to come on the scene and call them children of the devil. You, you, at this moment, you actually need to hear John the Baptist talking to you. And I need to hear him talking to me as children of Satan. It's very easy to look on to other people and say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense because they're, because they're sinners. I heard... Uh, a talk last week by a guy named Clay Jones, who is a professor at um, Biola University, and he gave a talk on the problem of evil. And he he made the claim that the reason we we get up in arms about uh, this problem of evil, this so-called problem of evil, and there's evil in this world, yet God is supposed to be good, and and all this. Um, he said the reason we even say it's a problem is because we don't really understand sin and the depravity of man. So he walked through, just so we could um, feel the depravity of man, he walked through some uh, very detailed examples of atrocities that happened throughout the centuries. Uh, So he walked through examples of the Holocaust, and I'm I'm not going to go into details that he went into, uh, the Holocaust, what, what people, seemingly normal people did or were okay with the atrocities that went on. Uh, he walked through uh, examples under, under Stalin and Lenin and Mao Zedong and Pol Pot and, and just all of these things. And, and he would give an example and he, would ref- he was reflecting upon his learning of all of these horrific details. And he would repeat to himself as he was reading these, like, this is impossible. There's no way people could do this to other people. But he said, and then I kept reading the details, and, well, actually, yeah, this is exactly what human beings do to other human beings. And example after example, this is impossible. No, this is exactly what human beings do. He went on to talk about, don't think this is just somewhere else. That this kind of genocide, this kind of craziness could happen. He said, think about America or right now in the past 30 years. Over a million human beings have been dismembered, poisoned. I could go on. 
in the womb. And so many of us are okay with that, apparently. We're okay with that. He said after he gave that talk and even gave that example, a a woman afterwards in one of his talks came up to him and said, your talk was very convincing. All those examples you you gave really hit the spot, but you you probably shouldn't talk about abortion. He's like, oh, why not? I said, well, well, I think that actually hinders your case because uh, a, a lot of people here in your audiences are, are not going to think that same way and they're, they're going to say that it's, that it's okay and so I think that harms your case. And he said, no, that's exactly my point, that people are okay with this kind of thing. That's what human beings do. And the minute that you say, well... I would never be involved in anything like that. All those examples, those horrific examples, there's no way that I could be involved in that. Well, why, why not? If that's, your, if that's really your take on it, you must think that you are somehow better than those other people. But that's the exact same problem that led to the genocide in the first place. It's people thought they were better than other people. You see, we, although we are not all as bad as we can be, we are all bad. We are all inclined away from God. We're actually inclined to ourselves. And the moment we start thinking that we're better than anybody else, that they need to repent, but not us, well, that's the first sign that you need to repent. John steps on the scene, and he completely levels the playing field. Everyone is equally guilty before God. And in fact, um, I, and I know this is offensive, and some of you may be uh, offended by this, and, and I'm sorry you're offended, I guess, unless it's actually true. And then maybe the offense is needed. Because here's the thing. Uh, although truth may be offensive, the truth... And particularly in this case, seeing the truth, the bad truth, allows you to actually see the grace that God offers. Understanding that you are an enemy of God and that God should just stomp you out. And, and He would be completely loving and completely good if He did so. To really understand that and the depths of that and then to see that God put on flesh and sacrificed himself for you, then that changes your entire disposition. That actually puts you on your knees in worship of the Almighty God. You are now filled with joy. You're not offended, except you're asking the question, God, why would you ever, ever do something like this? Why would you reach out from heaven and save me, a sinner, your enemy. Why would you sacrifice your own son for me? It makes no sense. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Until we see the bad news, we can never, never begin to see how good the good news really is. That's what John, that's what John was doing. His whole life was about doing this, was about pointing to Jesus. Sometimes he had to say some very, very hard words so that people would stop looking at themselves and look at Jesus, the rescuer, 
I guess my question for you today is, is, do you see Jesus? That's the whole point. Uh, when, When you see Jesus and his grace that he has to offer, that will change your entire life. It will change your outlook. It will fill you with joy even though it may not change your circumstances at all. In fact, it may make your circumstances worse. Declaring truth like this, it changed John's circumstances. Not for the better. I mean, this dude was chilling, living off the grid all by himself. Like, he kind of had the life. He didn't have to put up with all the mess. And when God called him into action, things got pretty bad for him. It got him beheaded. Do you see Jesus and nothing else? If so, that idea, the idea that you're going to be persecuted, takes a back seat. And so it's one thing to say, yeah, I see Jesus, I believe Jesus. Do, do you really? Or do you see him to that extent that you're willing to lay down your life for him? Are you willing to take up your cross and follow him? Because that's what, that's what Jesus is going to be asking you. Um, hmm. We're going we're gonna to stop there for now. And, and next week we're going to pick up with, with, with the rest of this. Because seeing Jesus, repenting, changing your mind w- will in fact change your life. It will. And we're going to see some of that being fleshed out next week. Uh, right now I want to I just stop where we are. And reflect upon this truth. Uh, reflect upon the truth that, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. When we recognize that, it will drive us to worship. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to corporately worship. We're going to do that by singing. We're going to do that by taking communion, remembering what Jesus has done. And we're going to proclaim that tangibly by, by taking the bread and dipping it in the juice and ingesting it. Uh, this is a time you can give out of worship in the honey pot over there. This is a time you can turn in your prayer request in, in the box. And so I invite you uh, to do that, to respond now to this good news in light of the bad news. Uh, to respond to the gospel in worship. So come have communion as you're ready.